I'm Dr. Jason Beatty. Welcome to the Tattooed Doctor podcast, where I will be attempting to change the world for addicts and anyone else currently suffering. I am spreading kindness, bringing knowledge, and giving you a new and progressive perspective on public health and safety. Join me in this journey, exploring hard truths, uncomfortable conversations, painful experiences, and personal growth. Welcome to the Tattoo Doctor Podcast. I'm sitting here with Dr. Jason Beatty, and this is our first podcast episode that we have had the chance to sit down and do. I am his wife, Jessica, and I thought that I would join him for the first episode so we could ask him some questions for those of you who don't know him or what he does and what he's very passionate about and get to know him a little bit, and uh, we'll let him talk now. So, Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from originally, because you're not from the States, and how you came to be here in the U.S. So, my name is, like she said, my name is Jason Beatty. Um, I am from New Brunswick, Canada, born and raised. Uh, I was there until about 17 years old, and then I moved to the United States, to Michigan, actually Lansing, Michigan. Um, and I've been in the U.S. ever since. I'm 47 years old now, so 30 years I've been here. I was a high school dropout when I left New Brunswick. Um, since then, I have been able to get a GED, um, go back to college, um, get a medical degree from Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine. I did a residency at St. Joseph Mercy in uh, Ann Arbor and Brighton um, with my wife. Actually, that's where we met. And uh, now I practice addiction medicine. Uh, I own and operate Freedom Recovery Center. Uh, I have four clinics across the state. But more so than that, uh, people, you know, I guess what I would say is people look at our clinics and they think, you know, we're a, an addiction clinic. Then the truth of the matter is we're, we're a movement. We're not a clinic. We're absolutely, absolutely a movement. I'm a huge advocate for addicts. I don't like what I see uh, with government treatment of addicts. I don't like what I see with local Law authorities, uh, or, um, or I'm sorry, the local authorities, I, don't, I just don't like the way addicts have been treated through the years. And so I have dedicated my life to changing some of that, not just treating them medically, but changing some of that. I don't know if that answers your question, but... Yeah, it does. And I think that that sort of touches on the whole reason that we wanted to even start the podcast is because Jason does things quite differently than a lot of other addiction recovery programs and has a lot of success with his patients. And we wanted to be able to provide a forum for people to hear what he has to say and how he's doing things and how it's different than the way that we've, you know, been classically taught how to treat addiction. And so that's really what the podcast is about, to be able to discuss those things and open up that conversation and really make it available for other people in other communities. So like Jason said, he, you know, is originally from Canada and came here and, you know, did things a little bit not traditionally. And one of the unique things about him is that he is tattooed, which is how he got the nickname the Tattoo Doctor. How many tattoos do you have, Jace? I don't really count anymore. They all kind of blend together, but um, I I have a lot. I look more like a biker than I do uh, a doctor. But I'm going to tell you, you know, I 
the reason I'm so comfortable with tattoos and I didn't care about the stigma and all of that, becoming a physician, lots of people said, you know, you don't want them on your arms. You don't want them where people could see them. Well, I broke through all of that because to me, this was about the heart, not about the skin. That's what this, what medicine should be. And quite frankly, I've learned more about human compassion from people with tattoos and no teeth throughout my life than I ever did from people with letters behind their names or powerful positions. So I like the tattoos. I guess there's no real way to answer the question for you other than I have uh, tons of them. <laughs> And your patients seem to really like that you have the tattoos. And why do you think that is? Well, as anybody knows me, I am not only when I walk in the room tattooed, but I will say fuck usually within the first three or four minutes. <laughs> and uh, I get some uh, guff for that. But the truth is, that's how a lot of my patients talk. And if you listen to the way people talk in their own homes, that's kind of how I talk to my patients. I don't put on airs. I'm not going to act like I'm smarter than you because I went to medical school because that's absolutely not true. Uh, and quite frankly, most of my patients can tell me more about addiction than I can, than I know about it. So, you know, they live that life. It's all too often doctors step up and think that they what they learned in a textbook is going to change this person's life, when in fact, it actually causes more harm than help in most cases. So, uh, again, I, I like to do things differently. And by differently, I mean, I, I don't I don't follow the same I guess I don't follow the beat of the same drum that everybody else is following because that's not working. It hasn't been working. I've it didn't take me long to figure that out. So instead of jumping on that train and just trying to, you know, beat that until it was dead, I decided to do something different. And so again, my patients would tell you uh, they've never met a doc like me or doctors like the ones that work for me any longer because now through my some of my guidance and so forth. I knew I had compassionate doctors when I hired them, but I needed them to step outside the box. And that means that you're going to go to court every now and then and sit there with one of your patients that has nobody uh, to help them. You're going to take phone calls at eight or nine o'clock at night because that's when they need you. If you've written them a prescription for something that they absolutely have to have uh, and you are not available after seven o'clock and you screwed up that prescription, that means they could go all the way until the following day or even through the weekend without their medication because there was nobody to answer the phone at six o'clock at night. That is absolutely unacceptable. They need help, not just your time from eight to four, nine to five, or whatever that may be. So we've set up a way that they can communicate with somebody all the time, and that's so important. My doctors go to court. My doctors go to jail to visit their patients. We write letters on their behalf. We even go to war with the big, uh, big organizations like the Secretary of State and so forth. So my docs are advocates for their patients. That's the way I wanted it to be. All hours of the day and night, they're there for them. And so I think how that makes him so different is when it comes right down to it, it's relatability. His patients relate to Jace and a lot of us uh, providers who work for him and, and are in the recovery community now have learned a lot just watching the difference in the way that he interacts with his patients and the conversations that they have and the way that they speak to each other. And the tattoos are sort of just a metaphor for that, right? It's it's different. It's something that patients don't usually see doctors have and they feel more comfortable and they relate to him. And then the rest of us watch that interaction and we have followed suit and, and found how unbelievably effective it is when you are relatable and you treat your patients like they are equals and, 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 and it makes it so much more effective for communication and for recovery. And so I think, you know, the tattoo doctor nickname is, is, is pretty fun and, but also it's very unique because it makes him so much more relatable and in the community and to his patients. 
So we've learned a little bit about where you've come from and your background in education. Now, there's a couple of different questions that we have because I just want people to have uh, a better picture of your history specifically. So I'm going to kind of phrase this in a two-part question. One, I want you to speak a little bit on your own addiction, your own struggle, and also to how that drove you to work in the recovery community and the paths that you took to actually open up the recovery center that you run now. Sure. Well, the first part, you know, comes easy for most addicts. It's handed down to us. Lots of people think this is a choice and people just want to get high and they're running from their problems. And, you know, the fact of the matter is with 8 billion people on this planet, we've all had a different upbringing and it wasn't perfect. And somehow somebody out there has decided that their way was the only way. We've all decided to make that a model. Well, I think that's old now. That's an old way of thinking. We have too many people on this planet to do anything with a blanket, right? So... When I was growing up, I went through trauma just like almost every other, well, literally 99.99999% of the addicts I've met, both personal and professional settings, uh, have suffered trauma in one form or another. And I'll tell you from my experience, the number one thing that forms an addict is neglect, not sexual abuse or physical abuse. It's actually neglect. Quite frankly, a lot of the people that are sexually and physically abused, believe it or not, when it comes to what forms an addict, that's a form of affection or that's a form of, uh, I wouldn't say affection, but a form of um, attention that they're getting as a child. And if they don't know any better, um, they don't know that there's anything wrong. Well, you see, in the, in the case of most addicts, what happens is you have a, it's not always the parents, it could be any other authority figure or somebody that that child has grown to trust and, and see as a, a protector, uh, and that person fails them for whatever reason, whether they're, they're sick themselves, they suffer from addiction themselves, what have you, the child ends up getting a message that they are worthless, they don't belong, they don't, um, they don't matter, they're not equal to everybody else. And then when they finally do get out into the public, uh, you know, with other children in school and so forth, these kids like myself realize, well, something's off. That kid, you know, doesn't have dirty clothes or that kid doesn't, uh, you know, his dad played with him this weekend. I saw them playing ball in their front yard. Why doesn't my dad do that? The point is these kids come out and they don't feel like they fit. We didn't feel like we fit with anybody. You don't feel like you belong. And then when I say this to almost every patient I have, you remember those kids smoking cigarettes, how attractive they were? Everybody's eyes lights up and they remember the day that they started smoking cigarettes with these kids. Everybody likes to talk about gateway drugs and all that. Those don't really exist. Not for this population of people, true addiction, substance use disorder. So they, what they do is gravitate to these children that are smoking cigarettes because these kids have a similar background. None of them felt like they fit until they found each other. So... What happens is, of course, they stumble upon throughout life trying to figure out why they're having these emotions, what they mean. They weren't given any guidance as a child to, to, to learn how to manage these emotions. So what they do know is that it causes them to have what's called, a, I, I call a suicidal code in the, in the brain. And, and you can call it whatever you want, but what it does is it, it repeats a message to the addict that they don't belong, that they're not good enough, and that the world will be better off without them. Now, you can say boo-hoo, poor them, but unless you suffer from it yourself, I would tell you, quite frankly, to just keep your trap shut. Uh, this causes literal death. It causes people to use to the point where they die, lose their children, go to prison for many years, uh, or they just blow their brains out. You know, quite frankly, when I, when I argue with some prosecutors that still uh, foolishly believe that it's a choice for them to pick up, I tell them, I'll give you that. But that choice was between immediate suicide, letting it go as long as you can, like you've known to do before, and it will cause isolation, depression, and suicidal thoughts. Or 
you can pick up that substance that you found when you were a kid that makes all that go away. So what the world sees as the addict's problem, the addict sees as their solution. It stops that suicidal thinking. So as I was growing, growing up, I realized that there were problems. It wasn't until I got into education and realized when I started to go to college as a high school dropout, I had to go back and get a GED. I did that because I wanted to become a doctor. I absolutely wanted to change some of the bullshit that I was seeing and I thought that would be the most effective way to do it. Nobody wanted to listen to anything I had to say about addiction because I was just an addict. Boy, when you add two letters behind your name, people automatically start to pay attention for whatever reason. I'm still the same addict spouting the same what they used to call bullshit, but now it's evidence-based or it's proof or it's you know expert advice. Well, it's really just an addict telling you what I've been telling you for all these years. Now you're listening because I got an education. That is something that I think needs to be changed in this world. So as I got into my medical training, I realized that over 65% of the patients that we will see in any field of medicine, I don't care if you're a psychiatrist, an orthopedist, it makes no difference to me. 60 plus to 65% plus of your patients will suffer from substance use disorder. And yet the medical community, as I was learning and my wife and I were going through training, offered nothing in the way of addiction treatment uh, training. So I took it upon myself to take an elective for one month out of a three-year training at a hospital, I guess that I won't mention, but at a hospital that's renowned for addiction medicine and recovery and treatment. And I could tell within two to three days that they were setting their patients up with using medication-assisted treatment, which we can discuss further, you know, later in the future. Um, they were setting them up for absolute failure. And then as I continued to pay attention to the drug courts and to the court system, I realized they're doing the exact same thing. They're setting these patients up with an abstinence model that is absolutely impossible in the general public, let alone somebody that's, that suffers from substance use disorder. And I don't feel, I don't understand why all of these smart people at the top of their game in their fields cannot see this as plain as day like I do. In my opinion, uh, what I've gathered through the years is that those that wish not to change their view either have a vested interest in making money off of the addicts the way it is now, or they just don't care one of the two. And that's sad because some of them are in, are in positions of power over the addicts. So, so back to my story, I, I realized I needed to go to medical school. I realized I needed to do something different. So I got the X number, which is what you need to do. Uh, it's a number they, uh, a letter they add to your DEA number so that you can prescribe Suboxone, which is a substance we use for addicts that are addicted to opium based products. And so when I was in my residency, I asked them, um, I told them what I wanted to do. I wanted to get this license and I wanted to help addicts and I met resistance immediately. Nope, we don't want you doing that here in residency. Okay. So I waited until I was out and I hired in with a large organization, a federally qualified health center and told them what I wanted to do. And they said, nope, we don't want those people here. So being one of those people, I always, I was a little irritated and decided that I was gonna do it myself. I'd opened my own practice and I made that very clear to the people I was working with that this is what I'll be doing. You don't want me to do it for you, I'm going to do it alone. And I did. So I opened my first Freedom Recovery Center and I answered the phone myself in the beginning and set up appointments and worked out of another doctor's office because I didn't have any money to do anything with it so to get the whole thing going. But I continued to do it. And for the first six months or so, I was losing money hand over fist because I just wanted to keep it going because I wanted to help. Because what I realized is that as I started to talk to these folks and they saw me with the tattoos and I said fuck every now and then and I talked to them about my own addictions, which was alcohol, my drug of choice, and then later on uh, opiates, uh, 
they started to open up and would tell me they've never opened up like this to anybody before. And I believe that to be true because they were telling me things that I were horrible, horrible things that bring about shame and so forth. Well, that's the key to fixing this disease is you've got to feel like you belong. You've got to feel like somebody cares. You have to feel like you matter. Remember I told you there's a code in the head that tells them they, they should die because they're worthless. Well, if you meet them as a physician and you stand over them and tell them that you are uh, smarter than them or that you know how the drugs work and you're going to tell them exactly how this is and how many they need and so forth and so on, you're going to lose that patient because these guys have already done, they've survived 40 years, 50 years, whatever it is without your guidance because the medical community knew nothing about how to manage this disease. Yet here they stand with a disease that makes them want to kill themselves and they're still standing in front of you on their own two feet and you're going to have the audacity to tell them that you're going to fix them. You're going to tell them what they need. Well, that's just ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. You're nothing more than a partner in their recovery. You're not the one providing it. You're a partner. They're doing all the work. You're just doing the guidance if you're doing what you're supposed to do right. So I got into this field because I realized that the medical field, one, is broken. Uh, the insurance reimbursements and so forth, Those, if you're taking insurance like many doctors have to, you're a slave to those insurance companies. It's hard to color outside the lines or think outside the box uh, for your patients if you take insurance. But they've got the way the system is set without taking insurance uh, you go under very quickly or you're absorbed by some big corporation or what have you. And now we all know how that works. Big corporation, hospitals and clinics, you know how you're treated. You've all been there. I don't need to talk bad about them. You've all had visits. So, so the reason I got into this was I got sick and tired of watching addicts go down the drain. I got sick and tired of powerful, smart people talking to them and treating them like they didn't matter and not taking the time to learn anything about their disease. So I'm loud, I'm mouthy, I rub people the wrong way sometimes, and quite frankly, I love it because that's what's finally started to get things moving. Diplomatic or di diplomacy works sometimes. Sometimes you just got to get right in somebody's face and say you're wrong in front of all their friends so they feel uncomfortable and actually do something about it. That's what I do. So, you know, Jess or anyone else that works with me can tell you when my patients get arrested or something for a drug-related crime, they don't call their attorney first, they call Freedom Recovery Center. Because they know that we're going to make that public assistant or that public attorney, whatever you want to call it, public, publicly provided attorney, we're going to make them do the best job they possibly can for you. We're going to drive them crazy until they do. So, again, that's a long-winded answer and that's what you're going to get from me. I'm real passionate about this. I love the people that we work with. Uh, you don't want them, we'll take them right here down at Freedom Recovery Center. You don't want them in the UP. We have tremendous troubles up there finding doctors that want to treat addicts. Uh, meaning that if they find out they're on Suboxone or they're getting any kind of medical treatment whatsoever for addiction, uh, they, they remove all the other drugs that they were on that, was, that were managing their lives beautifully. So they don't even want to be their family doctors anymore. Uh, they're trying to talk them out of different ways of treatment when they know nothing about addiction. And so right here in Alpena, we'd like to steal all those patients. <laughs> we want them. You guys don't want them in the UP, we'll take them here and our doctors will take care of them because they damn well care about their patients here in Alpena. So... How many years has it been since you opened Freedom? Was it eight? Eight, eight, eight years. years. Yeah. So eight years ago, Jason started this organization and it was a very, you know, small on the ground grassroots organization that he started and started small with one small clinic and grew. And now he has four locations and we have multiple providers that see the patients. And it's been over the last eight years, a, a really great learning experience. And I think we'll probably save uh, that discussion for another podcast. But the way that we've treated and and um, used medication-assisted therapy has changed and evolved over these last eight years. And we've really learned a lot about 
what works and what doesn't. And so that's going to be something that we will absolutely address. And Jason can can talk about that on another podcast. But I want to make sure that you know that Freedom Recovery Center is is quite different and, and treats addiction quite different than other uh, organizations. And that's really why, like I said before, we're doing this podcast so we can we can get that word out there and people can hear the different ways that are available to actually to, to help people. The other thing that I wanted to to ask about is when it comes to other recovery programs or other recovery methods that we've used, there are definitely people that fall through the cracks or reasons why those methods don't work well for people and their success percentages aren't necessarily you know, really all that high. So two things. One, what do you think is the biggest missing piece from those other methods? And two, I know that you measure success for your patients a lot different than than most doctors do. Sure, and yeah. so I want you to sort of touch on that because I think they're kind of linked together, the the difference in the other methods and how we measure success in somebody who is in recovery. Sure. I would like to talk about the second one first because uh, the one thing I think most doctors, the mistake they make in all these new programs that are popping up is they think that de- decreasing the use will then straighten out the life. When the reality is you can straighten out the life first and decrease the use. And the way you do that is you find something about these patients, that 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 piece, that that diamond in the rough, and then you polish it for them. You help them see what a beautiful soul they are. You help them get rid of all the stuff they've been taught about addiction. They get rid of what other doctors or other pharmacists or their parents or whoever have talked to them about being an addict. We help them reverse all of that and see that that was nothing more than ignorance on the behalf of the people that did that to them. So that is the first thing that we do that's different than the most of the other clinics and what causes our patients to do better than most. The other thing that uh, I would say that most doctors need to do, and I know it's a risky thing and I don't, I'm not knocking you if you practice this way, but if you practice medicine because you're in, in a manner that is obvious that you are afraid of the drug enforcement agency or the local authorities or what have you, you're not doing your patients any justice, especially not in this field. Law enforcement doesn't like medication-assisted treatment, but law enforcement haven't been real big fans of addicts in the past either because their view of them at the time that they interact with them is not a good one. So they only see one side. It's our job to teach them something different, and that's what we're trying to do. But what happens is you get doctors that, for instance, if you have a person on Suboxone that comes into your clinic and they start testing positive for alcohol and you've talked to them repeatedly about it and the dangers of alcohol, it being the most dangerous drug out there and so forth, and there's just nothing they can do, it's difficult. Many of these places will throw them out after the first or second alcohol drop or third that they were, were, were positive for alcohol because... The package inserts will tell you, and the research shows, that alcohol can kill you mixed with this drug. But what most doctors that don't suffer from the disease of addiction or don't have a substance use disorder, they tend to miss, is the fact that most of these patients have a tolerance level that is much, much higher than the average person. So your options at that point would be to discharge the patient meaning that you give them no more Suboxone to protect them from opiates and they go back to the street and now they're addicted to both opiates and alcohol at the same time, which will absolutely kill them at some point. The other option is you continue to try to work with them and you take your chances that if the patient does die and there's a lawsuit, you still did the right thing for your patient because cutting them off of the medication that's protecting them from one drug 
just because they're using another is pretty asinine in my opinion. And so there are 12 step program people and so forth that look at all this like, well, this isn't recovery. This isn't clean. This isn't, that's not what I'm after. So you're absolutely right. That's not what it is. That's the problem. That's what we've told people it is for years. Abstinence is the only measure of success. I call bullshit. (laughs) How can it be the only measure of success? Think about that. If a person is using every single day a very powerful, deadly uh, product like alcohol or say uh, heroin, and all of a sudden they start treatment with us, or not all of a sudden, but over time they start treatment with us, and they've gone from using 100% of the time every single day to once or twice every month, maybe three times, do the math. It's a 90 plus percent reduction in use, a 90 plus percent reduction in the harm that's supposedly will come to them or possibly could come to them. So if you don't see that as success, you're blind or you're looking at the wrong things. And so now if you see that patient as failing and you don't tell them, hey, you need to give yourself a round of applause for doing as well as you have. Instead, you come at them like you failed. You need to get out. You're taking a patient that's doing beautifully working so hard at this and managing their disease better than most diabetics would and you're kicking them out of your practice. Really? Think about that. Think about that. So again, if you're practicing because you're scared of what other doctors are going to think or what the DEA says or even SAMHSA, the governing body of uh, addiction doctors, they're not always right either. They come at it from a textbook standpoint sometimes. You can't. The textbook isn't always what's going to save you. In fact, Without giving you the name, there is a Bible for addiction uh, doctors that we should all read. I have read that cover to cover, and there's literally not one word in it that would help one of my patients because it talks a lot about neurotransmitters and how the disease process works, and all the smart people put lots of words in that book, but nobody remembered that we're talking about human beings. We're talking about patients that suffer from this disorder and those neurotransmitters and those problems that they have in the brain. That's what we need to focus on. Not the textbook bullshit. This is somebody, a human being, flesh and blood sitting in front of you. We need to do something for them. And we're going to start by treating them like a human being and not being afraid of the DEA and doing what is right for the patient. That's what we do. So that's, that's my, that's, I guess that's the long answer. (laughs) And I think what, you know, most of the other programs really are demonstrating is that, that if somebody does relapse or they have a failed drug screen or not desirable results so they say then it's a punitive system they get punished they either have to um do extra visits or more drug screens or pill counts or they get discharged and so it ends up being a punishment instead of really an encouragement or addressing the root cause or the issue. And so I think, you know, we'll definitely go into that more depth in, in some other podcasts. But, um, and you can hear our kids in the background because we're at home. So <laughs> sorry about that. Keeping it real. <laughs> and uh, anyway, but, you know, so so for so long, we've just told people to white knuckle it and, and get through it. And, and that's really the only option that we have. But and punish them. And, or punish them if they can't and they aren't successful with that method. And so that is one of the the themes that we will be definitely addressing in this podcast is why that isn't working and what we need to be doing specifically to 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 change that. And so we sort of touched on it here and we'll talk about it more, but this is really just the intro podcast and so we wanted to just kind of give you a a general idea of what Freedom Recovery Center is, who Jason Beatty is, why we're doing this, why it's different than other programs. 
and will address a lot of different issues that there are in the recovery community and and the methods that we're using to treat addiction and we'll address Suboxone specifically and we have a um, we'll talk a little bit about our nonprofit animal sanctuary that we have where people can come out and really have uh, a place of healing and and a, a location to actually get away from you know the craziness of their lives and and have amazing interactions with Jason himself. Um, and and if there's anything in particular, too, that you guys want to talk about or you want to hear Jace address, please get a hold of us and let me know. Um, and we'll, we can always make a podcast on that. I know a couple people were asking about doing a podcast on marijuana use, and I think that that's something that we definitely will need to address, as well as, um, you know, issues with law enforcement and drug court and um, all kinds of different things. So so please let us know if there's something in particular that you would like to talk about. Absolutely, we will. And we plan on doing an episode probably about once a week. And uh, um, we look forward to to talking to you and interacting with the community. And uh, is there anything else you want to add, Jace? Well, I would like to add a little bit about the sanctuary. I Just my philosophy, and I know, Jess, you fall in line with this too, but as an addict myself, I... When I see somebody come out there uh, just to meet the animals and so forth, and then we get to talk and sitting around a campfire and so forth, and they realize that they're being treated like a human being and they're being treated like an equal and they're sitting here with a doctor, but it feels more like they're sitting here with just one of their old buddies, it really makes a huge difference because they're open to listening to what we have to say and they're open to to recovery. They're open to, to, to learning how to manage their disease. Notice I said manage their disease and uh, I feel like that's what this is. We have to We have to focus on that. So... The way we do that at the sanctuary is we save animals from slaughter uh, or abuse. And these are lost souls, too, that have been through a terrible, terrible life. And hopefully their last stop is with us if we can continue to uh, finance it. But, but you know, we're, we'll do everything we can, including live in a box, and which is kind of what we've been doing and to, to support these animals. And the reason being is that when you see that connection with some of these folks that come in that have been totally... Um, treated poorly by human beings and they just they're out of they're all done peopling um they make a connection with this animal and it's the first time they start to open a little bit and start to heal and start to feel like there's hope and you can see that you can genuinely see that and so that's the thing that we like to do we the thing the the types of things that we like to do at the sanctuary i consider it lost souls saving lost souls we don't charge for any of that that's just uh something we like to do with the community anybody's welcome to come out at any time if you want to spend time with me out there and chit chat um, it's best to give me a heads up. I'm a busy dude, so I'm all over the place, but I'd be more than happy to spend time with anyone of you out there listening. You can always just come and shovel shit with him. Yep. I'm <laughs> shoveling shit one way or another. I'm a doctor and a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for listening to the podcast and, and hopefully you enjoy. And if there, like I said, if there's anything you want us to address, let us know. I think probably the next podcast will specifically just very basically talk about addiction as a disease because I feel like that's something that is really misunderstood and there are so many people even educated people out there that are really uh, looking at addiction still as a choice and I think that's a really basic place for us to start so look for the next podcast that's I think what we'll address next Um, but hopefully we will uh, hear from you soon and be good to each other and stay out of harm's way